0: Hello, I'm Matt, and this is ghost The The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 39, Roman Ghosts of Britain So, I got over the cold that I had when I recorded my previous episode. However, I then got another cold. I'm mostly over it now, but if my voice sounds a little bit off this episode... That's the reason why. All right, now on with the ghosts. When observing how often people in the United States blame hauntings on Native American burial grounds, I've often joked that I wanted to know what Europeans blame their ghosts on. As we learned in episode ten on London Bridge, the one in London, the London Bridge in Arizona is episode eleven. The answer is generally plague pits. That is the pits that the bodies of plague victims were tossed into. However, another common apparent cause of hauntings is Romans. As anyone who knows their history is aware, the Romans settled all over the place in Europe, Western Asia, and Northern Africa, so, of course, they left their ghosts behind. The British Isles have a special and somewhat conflicting relationship with the Roman Empire. The location of Roman settlements grew into major cities, and their Roman heritage is often celebrated and discussed. At the same time, Figures such as Boudica, a Celtic queen who fought the Romans, is prominently celebrated as a figure of resistance to Roman predation. So, given that Rome looms large over the history of all of Europe, and that Britain both celebrates its part in Roman history and its part in frustrating Roman ambitions, it makes sense that the Romans play a role in British ghost folklore. In this episode, I will tell some stories of ghostly Roman soldiers in Britain, and then discuss the things that tie them all together. In October of 2007, George Gunn, a member of the Outwood Community Video Club, captured something strange on video along a path in Outwood, a village in Surrey, England. What he caught on tape was a bluish-gray shape and Gunn and his friends believe that it looked like a Roman soldier taking a walk down a footpath on which the video was shot. In the video, you can see the apparition appear and then vanish as soon as two people jog through it, clearly not themselves seeing the spectral centurion. The image was, apparently, not visible to Mr. Gunn when he made the recording, but he saw it while reviewing his footage later that day. In the reporting on the story, Gunn was often quoted as saying that he did not believe in ghosts, but that the image he captured seemed strange and had him curious. He also stated that others have reported ghost sightings in the area, though he did not buy those stories himself. The only photo that I've been able to find of the alleged apparition is small and of low quality from the BBC News website. I tried to find the unedited video, but could not. I did, however, find a version on YouTube that had delightfully cheesy music and analysis, and I will include a link in the show notes. Of course, this little trip to Surrey is only the first stop on our tour of Roman ghosts in the UK. As I described in episode 10, a few portions of the medieval London Bridge still stand. One is a portion of a wall on the south side of the Thames. This medieval feature isn't much to look at, but it does have a strange reputation. You see, there is a story that people sometimes see a Roman soldier standing near it, apparently oblivious to the modern world around him as if he is still standing on a long, permanent vigil against the Britons who have long since thrown off Roman rule. Why is the Roman soldier associated with a section of wall more properly associated with later residents of the island? That is never made clear, but it is said that you can see him still standing watch over the river that, though much changed, was also known to the Romans stationed in Old Londinium. As the Romans were often known as great builders of roads, it makes perfect sense that the roadways of Britain would likewise be haunted by the ghosts of Roman soldiers. The M6 motorway, the largest motorway in England, travels from the Midlands, appropriately near the middle of England, to the Scottish border near Carlisle. The road is notorious for traffic collisions and fatalities resulting from those collisions. One section, near Chester in the northwestern portion of England, is said to be especially haunted and, as a result, especially prone to deadly auto collisions. Numerous different spirits are said to have been witnessed here, ranging from the vanishing hitchhikers to medieval English and Scots soldiers, apparently ready to fight each other again. But what is most relevant to the subject at hand is that, according to local stories, a legion of Roman soldiers can often be seen marching across the road. Now, Some, such as previous Most Haunted host Yvette Fielding, credit the presence of the Spectral Legion to the fact that Chester once held Deve Vitrix, a Roman fortified town that was built by and housed a Roman army known as the Legio II Adiotrix, and it was later rebuilt by the Roman army Legio XX Valeria Victrix. In Fielding's telling, the concrete of the motorway acts to conduct visions of the past into the minds of modern people. This is a variation on the rather odd and physically implausible stone tape theory that I discussed in episode 11. Another explanation is provided by Mike Brooker, a self-described international psychic, and no, I don't know quite what that means either. Brooker refers to numerous rumored nearby sites, including, in his words, a Roman burial ground, the site of a battle between English and Scottish soldiers, and places of early Saxon military activity. According to him, any of these might explain the collisions, though he personally favors the idea of the crashes being due to the Saxon involvement. While most of the sources that I found seem to view the ghosts as largely passive, with collisions being due to people being startled to see them or trying not to collide with what they think is a person, the sources that I could find that quoted Brooker all tended to suggest, though not outright state, that the influence of the ghost was more active, akin to a curse rather than simply being something that is unaware of the modern activity around it. It's not clear if Brooker himself believes that, but that is certainly what's being implied. Tarmac, a UK-based road construction company, produced a list of the 10 most haunted British roads back in 2006, and had one of its staff members, a man named Tony Simmons, rank the roads. These rankings were based not simply on the number of reported ghost sightings, but also on the clarity of those sightings. Mr. Simmons is quoted as saying that it is easy to mistake a natural swirling mist for something more sinister. Despite expectations that a lonely country road or an old road in an isolated part of town would come out on top, it was the M6 that was crowned by tarmac as the most haunted road in Britain. I could not find out why tarmac produced such a list. I suspect it was a bit of Halloween fun, but I'd love to speak with Mr. Simmons, as I have a feeling that he would have some interesting tales to tell. The appearance of the spirit seems to be remarkable, with one witness cited by Metro UK describing ghostly Romans seen along the M6 near Litchfield as more like upright shadows than men, who had no legs but appeared to be walking through the tarmac as you would walk through water suggesting that they are passively responding to what the environment was when they were alive, rather than active participants in the environment today. Yvette Fielding ties the appearance of ghosts at the M6 to tales of hauntings in the general area. She specifically cites a building where Roman soldiers are seen walking through the walls, which is consistent with her description of these ghosts as being passive replayings of the past, rather than active agents in the present. Before we move on, there is one more story of a Roman ghost in Cheshire that I'd like to mention. That story involves a Roman legionnaire who had fallen in love with the local Celtic girl and often left his post on guard duty to go see her. One night, the girl's parents took advantage of this and attacked the fort along with other local Celtic Britons, killing the sentries and looting the fort. Upon the legionnaire's return, the survivors, who blamed him for abandoning his post, lynched him. Now his ghost appears between the amphitheater and Newgate. Let's move on now to Yorkshire and one of the most often reported ghost sightings in all of England. This is a story that I found repeated again and again in sources that I consult for this podcast. and is in fact, the inspiration for this particular episode. In 1953, an apprentice plumber by the name of Harry Martindale was working in the cellar of the Treasurer's House, a historic building in York managed by the National Trust. The young man saw something that shocked him to his core. As he was working on the building's pipes, he saw a group of men, dressed oddly and carrying round shields. Martindale could not see their shins or feet, as it looked as though they were walking on a surface below the cellar floor, trudging through the floor itself, rather reminiscent of the Roman legion spotted on the M6. Martindale grabbed his things, ran up the stairs, and... Well, at this point I've come across two different versions of the story. In one, recounted in a variety of sources, including Michelle Hanks' book, Haunted Heritage, Martindale changed occupations, eventually becoming a police officer, and never went back into the treasurer's house. It wasn't until the 1970s that he began talking about his experience, and at that point, others also began to come forward with similar stories. The other version, which is told on the National Trust website for the treasurer's house, holds that when Martindale ran up the stairs after seeing the ghosts, he encountered the curator of the house. When Martindale was unable to do much more than stumble over his own words, the curator calmly said, By the look of you, you've seen the Romans. Whether Martindale walked off the job site on his own or encountered the curator, the end result is the same. Eventually, the story of the Roman ghosts in the cellar became a well-known tale in York, and is now prominently displayed on the National Trust's website, and, not surprisingly, the National Trust offers ghost tours of the cellar. According to the National Trust, the fact that the soldiers appeared to be carrying rounded shields and not the more familiar rectangular shields of Roman soldiers had, for a long time, been held up as evidence that Martindale was simply making the story up. However, according to the National Trust, subsequent research indicated that the Roman 6th Legion was withdrawn during the 4th century and replaced with soldiers who typically carried the rounded shields. As for the ghosts walking as if on a surface below the cellar floor, Well, the sources I found, none of which were archaeological sources to be clear, say that there was an old Roman-built road in the area, and that the cellar floor sits about 18 inches above the surface of that old road. So if the ghosts were walking on the old road surface that they would have known, then their shins and feet would have been below the level of the cellar floor. And with that in mind, think back to the witness who reported ghosts walking on the M6, and her description that they were walking along the motorway as if they were in water, not pavement. It sounds rather similar, doesn't it? Commentary. So, rather than my usual commentary after each story, I'm combining them here because I think that these stories are tied together in several ways. The first thing I would like to discuss is who is representing Rome in the form of ghosts. Although Roman Britain had a variety of Roman citizens, including craftsmen, businessmen, government officials, and so on, it is the soldiers who appear as ghosts. Now, there are a couple of ways you could look at this. If you take these stories at face value as sightings of spirits, then you could say that the Roman soldier is easily recognizable in a way that other members of Roman society would not have been. So, of course, people see soldiers. Alternatively, I know that some people will say that the soldiers were engaged in a dangerous and life-altering profession, and so, of course, it is the soldiers who left a spectral mark due to heightened emotions. On the first point, I think that there is some validity, and I'll discuss that a bit more. On the second, I will simply point out that, with the exception of the love-prone soldier who abandoned his post, most of the Roman soldiers observed as ghosts seem to be going about their business in a fairly mundane fashion. So, heightened emotions seems unlikely. But, regardless of whether or not you believe that people are seeing ghosts, the fact that the stories routinely feature soldiers is, I think, worth examining further. First off, while Romans did have manners of dress that did mark them as Roman, that dress was not as striking and not as easily recognizable to a modern European as the uniform and armor of a Roman soldier. If I were to tell you that I saw a Roman baker appear before me, well, you might find the story interesting, you wouldn't have an immediate visual that you would if I told you that I saw a Roman soldier. So I think that this visual makes stories involving the Roman legions, or even individual members, striking in our minds, and therefore easier to remember and to convey in a manner that stories involving other members of the Roman citizenry would not. Another aspect of this that is interesting is that Rome was known for its military conquest of Europe and the Mediterranean. Rome began as a martial society, and was known for that aspect. Even when the Roman army was eventually filled with far more non-Romans than actual Roman citizens, it continued to be a symbol of Rome's authority. Even to this day, the Roman soldier remains a potent symbol, though an ambiguous one. They were conquerors and colonizers, to be certain. Their brutality was often unmatched, and they desired conquest for the sake of their own coffers, not for the benefit of those who they conquered. At the same time, the Romans also tended to actively work to bring improvements to the areas that they colonized. And while those improvements were for the benefit of Rome, they still proved to be of value for many of the indigenous people of the colonies. Many parts of Europe are proud of the Roman settlements and facilities built within their borders, while being equally proud of the homegrown resistance to Romans. When I visited England back in 2010, I was often amused by the fact that one could see a commemoration of Rome adjacent to a commemoration of Boudicca, the Celtic queen who spent some time raising Roman settlements and generally putting the fear of God into the legions, until she was finally defeated. And of course, as the Roman Empire shrank back, the places that had been colonized claimed independence. These places had been changed forever by the Roman presence. There's a reason why neither Celtic nor Germanic languages are spoken in Spain or France any longer and the indigenous people either reclaimed control, or control was taken by yet another group that invaded and displaced the Romans as conquerors. Roman conquest is, quite literally, ancient history in a way that later colonial empires are not. That said, I'd be cautious about thinking that there is no lingering symbolism there. We have seen a rise in white nationalism in Europe and the US in recent years which often uses Greco-Roman imagery, and so there are those who like to claim the legacy of Rome for their own modern political ends. Likewise, when I spoke with Michelle Hanks back in episode 25, she said that there is a weird political charge around talking about medieval Viking incursions into England. And I would expect that there are quarters of British society where a similar feeling about Rome may also rise. But Nonetheless, the Roman Empire has been dead long enough that they at least feel like a safe symbol in most settings. In this context, the ghost of a Roman soldier, in addition to providing a clear visual language, also provides a set of historic ideas within which one might contextualize a region and its history. If the Romans wanted it, it must have had value. If the Romans settled there, it must have become civilized. And if the Romans conquered, then there must have been local heroes who fought back. It creates a dramatic and malleable historic context for a place that other types of ghosts would not. But it also creates a setting with a feeling of distance and sterility that other attempts at empire would not have. It is hard to imagine anyone who is from an area that was colonized by Britain romanticizing the glories of England the way that the Renaissance through modern Europeans often romanticize Rome. With that in mind, I want to look again at what these Roman ghosts are up to, which is, well, Not much. They are said to essentially be carrying out mundane tasks of the sort that they carried out in life, marching, walking with their horses, standing guard, and so on. Even the lovelorn guard who was allegedly killed by those who blamed him for allowing an attack still just appears in the areas where you would have expected him in life. These are not the sinister spooks of places like the LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans, the mournful spirits of Chinese workers in California, nor even the returned dead come to see if they approve of historic renovations at Colonial Williamsburg. These ghosts are present, but essentially inert. They are markers of the past, but of a past that, while interesting and worth looking at, is regarded as weirdly not relevant to the present. It doesn't seem like a coincidence that they are also not active participants in the world around them, but function rather like old museum pieces for us to see and not interact with. Indeed, Michelle Hanks, an anthropologist who studies ghost tourism, has noted that, quote, At the Treasurer's House in York, the National Trust prominently features and advertises the well-known Roman ghosts in the basement, and even charges guests an extra fee to visit the place that they reportedly haunt. These displays deploy ghosts as established figures in the past. Their stories serve the greater unfolding of history at the sites. So, the ghosts are part of the historical furniture, there to help us understand the past, but still a part of it and not interacting with the here and now. Even the observation credited to the young plumber in the basement that the shields were round and not the more typical rectangular shields simply foreshadowed later research that would find that a different group of soldiers with round shields was present. The ghosts allowed a window into the past, but are not impinging on the present. Even on the M6, where some folks are blaming ghosts for deadly collisions, the descriptions seem to indicate not that the ghosts are causing the damage directly, but rather that drivers are either distracted by the ghosts or else taking pains to avoid what they think is a non-ghost person in the road. And so it is present-day human actions that are the cause of the collisions. The self-proclaimed international psychic, Mike Brooker, does suggest that ghosts may play a more active role in causing injury and death on the M6, But even there, while he cites a Roman burial ground as a possible cause, he also cites a battleground between English and Scottish forces, as well as a Saxon site. The relationship between England and Scotland has been contested for centuries, is the source of a lot of active debate and negotiation regarding what is and what is not a British identity, and likely will be for many years to come, and is sometimes thrust into the front of British politics, especially in the wake of Britain's exit from the European Union. The Saxons are one of the Germanic ethnic groups that took over England after the Romans left, and the Saxons remain an active symbol of British ancestry, at times becoming a very active symbol of British white nationalism. As such, conflict with Scotland and the Saxons as a group are much more active symbols in modern British culture than the Romans are, so it is worth noting that they are cited as likely causes for active supernatural menace, with Brooker preferring the Saxons as a cause over the Romans one of the interesting aspects of this way of looking at roman ghosts at least to me is that it is absolutely at odds with how history actually tends to function any historian worth their salt knows that history is not inert what occurred in the past still impacts our world today no matter how far back in the past you go what's more While there are absolutely limits to what one can say about the historic record, anyone with a knowledge of how historical work is done knows that our ever-evolving understanding of history is influenced by, and in turn influences, how we view the world around us today. Here in the U.S., it is not unusual to see right-wing pundits cite Rome's cosmopolitan nature and subsequent fall as a reason to limit immigration, while those same pundits will often point to Rome and ancient Greece as proof of the alleged superiority of white people over others. So, while Rome may feel like a safe place in the past, and is certainly not open to the same degree of contestation of meaning as, say, the transatlantic slave trade or the rise of Nazis and fascists in the 1930s, it is nonetheless still in play as a symbol. That it is literally ancient means that people who try to bring it up and use it for modern political ends can more easily make a claim about their objectivity than could be made with events of the more recent past that have more visible modern-day markers left behind. It is, in a way, more insidious. There is also an oddity in establishment organizations such as museums and government agencies incorporating ghost stories into their world. These organizations often try to establish their authority by claiming that they are making use of the best information available to provide the clearest view possible of the past. And yet, as Michelle Hanks points out, these officials feel that the use of ghost stories to get the public interested in history is justified. They do so by ignoring the fact that the existence of ghosts is both contested and not scientifically provable, meaning that they are toying with the intellectual currents that can erode the very authority that the establishment facilities draw upon. Also, I want to just briefly note the construction of the phrase Roman Burial Ground. Not Roman Cemetery, which would be a more proper and accurate description. Roman Burial Ground. Sounds weirdly similar to the Indian Burial Grounds that so many North American hauntings are blamed on. Really, a cemetery is just another word from burial ground, but we tend to use the term burial ground when we want to connote something sinister, which suggests something unsavory in how it is so often used in North America. Anyway, I don't know if there's anything to Brooker's use of the term, but it stuck out when I read it. On the subject of Roman ghosts as reminders of the past, the cellar in York is an especially interesting case. Michelle Hanks, Alina Pirock, and Tia Miles have all argued in their work that the use of ghosts in tourism, museums, and media allows people to put, for lack of a better way of saying it, flesh and bone on the people of the past, making them once again people and not just abstract ideas. But in doing so, it creates images of these people that match the ideals and desires of those who seek out ghosts. So while this would suggest that the Roman ghosts not interacting with the landscape or with witnesses could make them inert, it may actually suggest that the influence of Rome on modern Britain is seen as baked in and part of British identity, something that cannot be changed. And this, in turn, can feed the view that some modern white supremacists hold. Being a Briton means being a descendant of a historic line that goes back to a combination of Rome and the Celts. And that is just taken as a given and not open to debate. The ghosts are inert, but the ghost stories may make a sociopolitical point. Or, perhaps I am overthinking this. But it's hard not to see that as a valid reading, given a lot of the recent politics in Europe and how fears of migrants have played a heavy role. Incidentally, I want to mention something that I found interesting about one of the M6 ghost sighting locations. As noted, one woman claimed to have seen the spirits of Roman soldiers near the town of Litchfield. Now, the town's name is probably derived from the Roman place name Lidocidum, meaning grey wood, and likely referring to a variety of tree in the area. However, there is an Anglo Saxon word Lich, which means corpse. So there is a local folk etymology that claims Lichfield means field of corpses, and was named that by the Roman Emperor Diocletian after his army killed 300 Christians at this location. Now Diocletian absolutely persecuted Christians, and had many executed, but there is evidence that his edicts were largely ignored in the Western Empire, including Britain. This does leave open the question of why Diocletian would give the location an Anglo-Saxon name, rather than a Latin name, or even a Celtic name. The folk etymology, though it certainly sounds appropriate for a town near an allegedly haunted road, doesn't actually stand up to scrutiny. One other fun bit. In researching the name of the town Litchfield, I discovered that there is a type of bird called a Lich Owl, a common name of which is the European Goat Sucker. And, of course, if you translate the word Goat Sucker directly into Spanish, you get Chupacabra. Not relevant to this episode, but a fun fact to bring out at parties. Outside of the sociological aspects of these stories, I'd like to discuss an element that appears only in one story, the claim of the ghost caught on video. This story is, in of itself, not really all that interesting. There are any number of things that could cause the image on the video. Smoke, dust, or even just an artifact of the camera itself. But as I read the story, it got me thinking of something that I find fascinating. The evolution of the ghost photograph. During the 19th century and through the mid-20th century, photographs with alleged apparitions of various spirits were common. Some of these images seem like obvious fakes to anyone looking at them now, while others are more subtle and require some knowledge of photography in order to figure out what they actually show. However, when photography was new and people had not yet adapted to seeing photographic trickery, even photographs that appear very fake to our modern eyes might have seemed eerie and be taken as evidence of the spiritual presence. What these photos have in common is that they all try to show a human form, eerily translucent or looking tormented or even just out of phase looking, for lack of a better way of putting it. In an era before television and film special effects taught us what to look for in film trickery, and before Photoshop and digital cameras made us only too aware of the many ways in which even a rank amateur can fake a photo, those who wanted to show us spirits on film tried to make them look genuine. And one could argue that this video of the Roman ghost falls in that category, which I appreciate. The orbs and streaks so often used for ghost photos these days are usually an easy-to-explain artifact of the cameras being used. Remember, a camera operates by bringing light in and turning that light into an image, either on photographic paper or through electronic sensors. Anything that reflects light will affect the image. Because cameras bring in light in a manner a bit different than how the human eye does, objects may appear on film or in digital images that are not visible to the naked eye. Small objects that can reflect light, raindrops, motes of dust, insects, etc., tend to reflect light in a spherical pattern that is not visible to the human eye but does show up in a picture. If the object is caught in a particular way or is moving quickly enough, this may show up as a streak rather than a sphere. Likewise, small light sources, maybe dim enough to not be noticeable to the naked eye, may show up on film as streaks if the camera or the object emitting the light is moving, even slightly, when the shot is taken. This is especially true in low-light conditions. What the orbs and the streaks have over faked photos is that they are clearly genuine. Anyone can get similar photos, and they don't have the hallmarks of special effects or image modification because they are, quite simply, real images captured by the camera. They are also normal, non-supernatural things that show up in photos. So, spirit photography has really suffered due to a population familiar with special effects, with people leaving behind outright fraud and settling for mediocre bad photography. It's rather like how early 20th century mediums would communicate complex messages from spirits, while more modern audiences put up with John Edwards who appears to be playing a stupid game of charades, or more likely doing cold readings. The point is, Audiences get hip to the aspects of fakery, and more ambiguous and less satisfying spirit encounters became the norm as a result. So, rather than being convincing evidence of the supernatural, orb and streak photos are evidence that the spirit photos were fake. Otherwise, we'd still be seeing their like. The insistence that orbs are spirits showing up in photos speaks to the fact that the idea of spirits and the desire to find evidence of spirits are strong enough that we are willing to continue accepting more and more dubious evidence than to accept that maybe cameras just aren't great at identifying ghosts. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's g-h-o-s-t-h-r-o-p-o-l-o-g-y at gmail. You can find more at kmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostropology link, and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!